I have been in a series on transferring the glory as we get ready to relocate. And I want to turn today to 1 Chronicles 16, verses 1 through 2. So they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And continuing on at verse 7. On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. And this is the psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. And then I've capitalized this word, remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth, O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. And then once more, I've capitalized the word again. Remember his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. A thousand generations. If you listen to this psalm, you notice there are several themes that Continue to be reiterated. Seek the Lord is one of them. And then he talks about remembering what God has done. I want to speak this morning from the subject, the worshiper's heart. The worshiper's heart. I told you a couple of Sundays ago that we would shift the focus of the series that we're currently in toward worship as we neared the end of the year. Andrew began that last Sunday. The verses I just read are a psalm or a song written by King David. And on the day that David brought the ark of the covenant of God, the ark of God's presence to Mount Zion, he sang this song that he had composed especially for this auspicious and glorious occasion. Father, I ask that you would speak to us now and let your word be open to our understanding. Help us to relate the principles and teachings of your word to our present lives because, Lord, this word transcends generations. It transcends cultures and times and technologies because it contains the principles of the kingdom of God. We ask you to reveal them to us and share them with us this morning. And everybody shouted and said, Amen. Amen. In the Psalms, David stresses over and over again things that have to do with our personal devotion and worship. Things such as possessing an attitude of thanksgiving. He talks specifically about that. And the desire to give God both praise and worship for all that he had done for Israel. I've lived long enough to realize that an attitude of thanksgiving is something you have to have if you don't go to church, if you're going to do well. You plan on having a marriage that's worth anything, you need to learn to be thankful and express your thanksgiving to your companion for, the, as it were, the contributions they make to your life. They need to do the same to you. Children should make certain that they demonstrate to their parents that they're thankful for the sacrifices their parents have made on their behalf. It's good to be thankful on your job, every area of your life, but all of that just has to do with the temporal world. What opens up the spiritual world is a heart of thankfulness and worship. Now David loved and treasured the presence of God because he was a worshiper. He didn't want Israel to ever drift away from God again as Israel's leader, having just been appointed king over the reunited nation of Israel and its 12 tribes. He understood what a terrible and horrific tragedy it had been that three entire generations of their young people over a 70-year period 
had been raised without the presence of God. That box, the Ark of the Covenant, as I've already taught you in this series, symbolized the manifest presence of God in the earth. David knew the harm that it had inflicted on the values of his nation and the losses that it caused his people to suffer because they were not worshipers. They lost things they did not even know were missing. And in not having God's favor, the nation of Israel had stumbled along and lost its way. One of the single most important lessons that I've ever learned in life is that God's presence and his favor go together. They're inseparable. Where one goes, the other goes. They're like you and your shadow. Wherever you are, your shadow's going to be there. When you are a worshiper and hunger for God's presence, you will not only encounter his presence, you will also experience his divine favor. He urged Israel, David did, to remember all that God had done for them and to remember God's covenant with them forever. That's why I emphasized in capital letters in this psalm the use of the word remember. He's telling Israel, remember. That is because David understood that God's presence would not stay where it was not valued. In essence, he was telling them, don't lose your heart of worship again. That's what you did, Israel. You lost your heart of worship. I asked Tracy and James to sing that song they sang just before I got up here for a reason. I want you to listen to the words of the Psalms that David wrote. We just sang a song written by Matt Redman. I'll explain the reason that I asked that to be sung in just a moment. But David goes on to say in verse 29 of this same chapter, 1 Corinthians 16 and then verse 30, he says, give to the Lord the glory due his name. In other words, there's a debt, there's a deficit right now that needs to be addressed. God is due something that has not been given him. Bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. David is doing two things in throughout this psalm. One, he is looking backward at where they have come from as a nation. And then secondly, he is also looking forward with excitement to the good things that are about to happen to them. He looked back as it were, over the number of things that Israel had experienced during those last 70 years when they lost the Ark of the Covenant that I taught on before I left, from losing their way by taking God for granted to the humiliation of defeat at the hands of their enemies and then losing the Ark of God's presence to the enemy who captured it. They had suffered as a nation. They had also experienced the huge embarrassment of hearing that the ark of God's presence, their God's presence, had been placed in a pagan God's temple by their enemies. Of course, I shared with you the plague that broke out when that occurred. God will not be second to anyone. And the Philistines were quick to get rid of that, man. I mean, they decided they didn't want that ark anymore. And they sent it back to Israel as I explained, but they, when they received it at Beshemesh, the ark had returned. Israel suffered even the greater shame of it remaining forgotten in the house of Abinadab for 70 years, 70 years, because no one hungered for God to return. No one until David became king. And finally, when at last they had a king that the presence of God mattered to and who wanted the presence of God to return. By that time, they had already drifted so far away that they had forgotten the protocols on how to handle the presence of God in worship that they were required to observe. Of course, that resulted in the debacle of Uzzah's death. His familiarity, his lack of honor for God's presence. It was just a piece of furniture for as he was concerned. It had been in their house, the house of Abinadab for 70 years. Back there in the corner collecting dust. Whenever he reached forth his hand to steady it, he fell over dead. His decision proved to be fatal. And they stopped the procession 
All of that happened because they had forgotten the protocols that must be involved in worship that God accepts. There's a concept for us. You mean God has to have worship that meets certain conditions before he will accept it? Yeah. There are certain requirements. David was saying what those requirements were. Guys, I'm your king now. And I want that thing back. I want the presence of God back. We will not be a rudderless nation anymore. We need God at the helm. And to get him back, there's something you need to understand. We lost him because we lost our heart of worship. And we've got to have our heart of worship. Everything in that chapter is designed. All of the words of that song that David wrote are designed to do one thing, and that is to remind Israel that we have to maintain our devotion to God and our heart of worship if we want his favor to be with us again. Because his presence and his favor go together. Where one goes, the other follows. And you can't seek his favor without his presence. It doesn't work that way. So David then stops and looks forward. This is a pivotal point in their history as a nation. There have been 70 years of humiliations, 70 years of embarrassments. And now David as the king of the United Nations says, guys, our best days are just ahead of us. We're bringing the ark home. We've got it back. And he put it in the tent he erected for it. And unlike in the tabernacle of Moses, he didn't put a veil to shield it from the people He put 288 worshipers around it that worshiped in shifts 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And anybody could walk by and see the manifest presence of God. If there's anything that anybody ought to see when they visit church, they ought to be able to see God's presence. Can I hear somebody in the building say amen? They ought to know God's there. As I look at that, I cannot help but relate these two things, looking backward at where we've come from and forward to where we're about to go. I can't help but relate what David experienced to CT slash Inspire Church. I can't help but do that. We've come a ways over the last number of years. You know, it's not by accident (laughs) that we've been a church right now about 69 years, almost the same length of time the ark was gone. Amen. Just right at 69 years now, we were founded in 1950, and we're closing out 1978 to begin the 69th year of our existence. You, we've, come from some, we've come through some things in those 70 years, 69 years. We've come from afar. Oh, Lord, have we ever more. From a house where a prayer meeting started to a a church over, I don't even remember where it's at. Now, I think there's a Baptist church there. I visited there when I was just a kid preacher. You'd walk on the floor and the whole floor would bounce up and down like that. <laughs> Amen. To this building and now we're about to move and relocate to another one. Amen. When we do, there's one thing we need to understand. We have come through some things, but our greatest days are just ahead of us. I wish somebody would give the Lord a shout of praise. We are not going to lose our heart of worship when we relocate. The song, The Heart of Worship, was written by Matt Redman that we sang a while ago. The song dates back to the late 1990s. There's a story behind the song that I only learned just recently. I've sung that song for years. Always felt the poignancy of its tug at my heart. It struck something in me, and I didn't even know why. It wasn't until I I read the story, learned why that song had been written, that I began to understand why it affected me the way it did. That song is actually born out of a period of apathy and worship within Matt Redman's home church, Soul Survivor, that is in Watford, England. Matt Redman is a worship leader, quite well known. And though the nation of Great Britain has contributed to the current worship revival, Redmond's own congregation was struggling to find meaning in its worship at that time. Matt Redmond said there was a dynamic missing. There was just something that wasn't there. So the pastor did 
a pretty brave thing. This is in an interview he gave after the song had just, just exploded around the world. The pastor decided to get rid of the sound system and the band for a season. And we gathered together with just our voices. His point was that we had lost our way in worship. And the way to get back to the heart would be to strip everything else away. Reminding his church family to be producers in worship and not just consumers. The pastor, Mike Pilavici, asked, when you come through the doors on Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? He wasn't talking about money. He was talking about what are you bringing to give to God in worship? Because there exists an attitude in Christianity that I'm going to church to get something, not give something. Pastor Pilavici said, we're stripping it all away. He turned off the sound system. They laid down the guitars, put up the, the brass, turned off the keyboards, and they came to church. And he said, we're going to give God what each one of us have to give him. Matt says the question initially led to some embarrassing silence, but eventually people broke out into a cappella songs and heartfelt prayers. So somebody started singing and someone else joined in. And without a guitar, without a keyboard, without drums, they just sang. And then somebody began to pray and others joined in. And he said, before long, we reintroduced the musicians and the sound system. As we had gained a new perspective that worship is all about Jesus and commands a response in the depth of our souls, no matter what the circumstances and the setting. The heart of worship, Mad Redman wrote in that interview stated and the interviewer wrote it. It simply describes what occurred. The lyrics go like this. When the music fades. And all is stripped away. And I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. And then it goes, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. Redmond remembers writing the song quickly in his bedroom soon after the church's journey together. And for a time... Amen. Those of you that listen to worship music know, you know that that became an international worship anthem. Yet very few people realize the story behind it. I didn't know it. Matt wrote the words not to be a song, but he wrote the words as his personal subjective response to what he was learning as a worship leader about worship. And when he went and told his pastor about it, Pastor Pilavici suggested making a few minor adjustments to the lyrics so the members of the church could also connect with the message in worship too. And Matt says now he's absolutely amazed by how God has taken the song around the world for his purposes because he said it nearly didn't go any further than his own bedroom. The pastor said, shut it down. Shut down the drums. Turn out the, the lights. Turn off the guitars, put the brass away, turn off the keyboards. And I want to ask you, what have you brought as your offering to God? What did you come to give him? You see, it's really easy to lose our heart of worship. And it's the heart of worship that is what attracts the presence of God. We must never forget that. Our worship is what attracts him. When you enter into worship, it turns your face toward God. But what I've learned is that that's not all it does. It also turns his face toward you. Worship connects you with God. Amen. In a number of similar studies that have been performed by, by universities and their psychology departments, particularly one of the most notable being from Harvard. Science has found that when two people in love stare into one another's eyes for three minutes, their heart rates synchronize. Their hearts begin to beat at the same beat. 
when you stare into one another's eyes for three minutes, one whose heartbeat is faster slows down, and the other whose heartbeat is slower speeds up until the next thing you know, your hearts are beating together. That is what happens when you come to the house of God. It makes your heart begin to beat with the heart of God when you come together in worship. Worship is meant to connect us to God and to help us see his beauty. And it synchronizes our heart with his. Amen. It causes me to understand one of the reasons that some people have expressed that they find it difficult to live for God. When others, myself included, think it's the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. It's all about whose eyes are you connected to? Whose face are you looking at? Do you come here with a heart of worship? And over the last several weeks, that's the journey that we've been on together concerning the presence of God. One thing for sure that we've learned in our study is that the presence of God doesn't stay in one place, does it? No, it doesn't. I've shared with you this so many times, but people misquote Genesis 3 and 8 all the time. And they say that the Lord walked with Adam in the cool of the day in the garden. And yet there's no verse in the Bible that says that. What it actually says is they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You say, what's the difference? It's a big difference. The voice is always walking. The voice that you hear today is going to be over here tomorrow. And you've got to walk with God. You've got to hear his voice every single day. You need a preceding word of God. The word that served you yesterday is not going to help you next week. Hello, somebody. You need a now word from God. Does that mean that God is adding word to his Bible? No. He just illuminates one passage that is going to be exactly what you need right now. But he knows that tomorrow you're going to need something else. Because the challenge will be different. It's always been that way. The voice is walking. Isaiah 28.10. It says, for precept must be upon precept. And then it says it again, precept upon precept. Line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. And that's always been God's way. And when you study out through church history and even the individual lives of the children of God that you've known who have served God successfully for many years, you will see that that voice is always walking. It walks in church history. I've stood at the Wittenberg door and at Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. I've been there when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses because God had illuminated Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. But it didn't stay there. The voice of the Lord walked on and found a man by the name of John Wesley and spoke to him the word the sanctification. So not only do the just live by faith because God doesn't leave one, he adds to the other. Line upon line. Precept upon precept. Hello, somebody. So John Wesley preached the message of sanctification and the voice of God traveled on yet again and ended up in Azusa Street with a man named William Seymour, where the Holy Spirit fell. And then in Topeka, Kansas, and it fell again. And the next thing you know, people around the world are receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now there are hundreds of millions around the world that have received the Holy Spirit. In Red China alone, they claim that there are more people that have been baptized with the Holy Spirit than are presently members of the Communist Party. You see, as technology increases... And expands, so does our understanding of the Word of God. Then why is it that so many people get stuck? I'll tell you why. Because when God speaks here, they stop right there and they say, I heard a word and this is where I'll stand. No, you gotta follow what is moving. You gotta follow. And that's what we as a church are going to do. We're following. The move of God, God, the move of his presence and his spirit. There was a reason, David said, that Israel lost the ark of God's presence in the first place. He was essentially telling Israel, 
you lost your heart of worship. And that's something every believer should be very, very wary of. Every day, I need you to understand this. There's something that wants to rob you of your worship. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Phone calls, work to be done, television programs, games, whatever, and none of those things are wrong. But you have to have priorities. You have to know what matters most, and that's what David was saying. In fact, to help keep Israel focused on the right priorities, do you know there were eight feasts that they had to observe every year? Eight. You say, but wait a minute, Pastor, I thought there were seven. Most people do mention a list of seven, but they always forget the Sabbath feast, which occurred every single week, which was also one of the feasts that they were to observe in the course of the year. The others were seven solitary feasts that stood alone, but every week there was a Sabbath that was meant to recalibrate you, refocus you, reground you, get your eyes back on him, sit still long enough to look into his eyes and let your heart be synchronized with his for a little bit. Keep your love with God intact and pure. Hello, somebody. Hallelujah. These feasts were designed for that purpose. We think of the three most significant of those feasts because God actually required that Israel travel from wherever they lived to Jerusalem to celebrate these three. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover, and that was meant to commemorate God delivering them out of Egypt. Then there was the Feast of Pentecost, which was to celebrate God giving them the Torah after they left Egypt. Moses climbed Mount Sinai and God gave him the word of God on tables of stone. And then there was the Feast of Tabernacles that was to remind them to give God thanks for leading them through the wilderness. And they were all intended to help Israel relive these experiences from generation to generation. They had to pass this on to their kids. You see, it wasn't just enough for them to be worshipers. They had to teach their children to be worshipers too. And their grandchildren. Hello, somebody. And their great-grandchildren. And to do that, they had to set an example. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover was meant to remind them that God delivered you out of Egypt. And I just have to ask, is there anybody in the house that stopped recently to say, thank you for taking me out of Egypt, God. Thank you for saving me. I know where I was when I, you found me. I know where I was when you saved me. Hello, somebody. Is there anybody in the house that remembers when God showed up in your life? Anybody here that remembers how God delivered you and brought you out? Oh, yes. I've said it often. People make the mistake of saying, I found God, not me. I didn't find God. He found me. I was the one lost, not him. Hallelujah. But that's not all he did. They were to celebrate the feast of Pentecost because Moses was given the divine law. And God said, what I'm going to do today, I'm giving you tables of stone. But Moses, the day is coming. I'm going to write my law upon the inward parts of their heart. Does anybody in this building ever stop to give God thanks that you've got his law written on the inside now? That the longer you serve him, the more the word of God gets in here. And the old life calls you back, but something written in here says, no, you can't go that direction because you found a better way to live. Hello, somebody. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. I thank him for the word. That's why you need the word of God every Sunday and every day of your life, actually. And then there was the Feast of Tabernacles. Because in, even after God delivered them out of Egypt, and even after he wrote the word in their inward parts, they still went through some stuff. <laughs> oh, Lord. Can I tell you, I've gone through a thing or two in my life after I got saved. Oh, I'm talking to the house right now. I don't think there's anybody in this building that's exempted. If you've lived for God, you've been through some places in your life 
that you didn't know how you were going to make it. Amen. Is there anybody that remembers when God showed up and the doctor couldn't help you? Anybody remember when the God showed up and the attorney could not help you? Anybody remember when God showed up and the banker could not help you? I'm talking about after you got saved, God still showed up. Oh, somebody ought to give him some praise right now. Woo! Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I'll tell you how we men are, and I'm getting ready to close already. We men, we don't like to talk about our problems. Because when we talk about it, we relive it again. That's why our wives don't understand us. How'd your day go? Oh, all right. Well, tell me about it. It's okay. But what happened? Nothing. We could have gone through hell that day. Amen. But we don't want to talk about it because when we talk about it, it brings the emotion of it back. We don't like that. But God said, I don't care if you like it or not. Every once in a while, you better stop and remember what I've done for you. You better sit your kids around the table. You better tell them, God showed up for this family. God healed our marriage. God worked some things out that nobody could work out for us. Don't you hide it and pretend it never happened. You get it out every once in a while and say, this is what God did for us, family. This is what God did in our weakest, lowest, darkest moment. God from heaven stepped into the middle of a situation. And God made a difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did. And that's why I emphasized what David said when he said, remember. David is tapping into that, as it were, core history of the nation of Israel and reminding them that they've been brought through some things. Don't you ever forget if God brought you out of a nightclub and you got saved? Come on, can I hear somebody here? Don't you forget where God brought you out of. He had to roll his shirt sleeves up and reach into the muck and the mire. You weren't always a child of God. Hear what I'm saying. Even if you lived a good life, you were still lost because you were Adam's seed. But he showed up and saved us anyway. Don't you lose your heart of worship. You know, it's really easy to do that. And I fully understand what Pastor Mike Pilavici of Soul Survivor Church in Watford, England was talking about when he said, shut it down. I thank God for our musicians and our worship pastors. They do such an incredible job. But I understand. I understand. You can get to the point where it's all about the program. And you come and you see what you can get. There are also in the Christian community, there are distractions that the enemy uses to cause us to forget too. We don't have eight feast days in the course of a year. Oh, we've got Sunday where we're supposed to be in the house of God every week. Sometimes we even get a little bit relaxed about that. Always wish when I see people that are not in church on Sunday, well, I just overslept. Always wish you'd get on an airplane with me and travel for 40 hours to Africa where you can have a chicken put in your hands. (laughs) After people get through dancing, beating on a drum, boom, 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 boom. Amen. You know, you can strip a lot of stuff away. We have become consumers rather than producers. And it wasn't supposed to be like that. We do have two major holidays in the course of a year that are the Christian's most holy days, not seven. Yeah, look how those are observed. (laughs) We're coming up on one right now. Christmas, right? Christmas, Christ mass, mass being worship service, a worship service for Christ, (laughs) his birthday. But on his birthday, more and more and more, he's being left out of his own birthday party 
Did you hear about the Omaha, Nebraska school principal who two weeks ago announced she will not allow candy canes on the school grounds? The reason? She said the J stands for Jesus. And we just can't have that in America, can we? Not on school grounds. Or how about the politically correct holiday tree? If you buy a Christmas tree and they have holiday tree written on on, on, on the sign out in front of all those trees, I pray you'll drive right by and go to the next one that says Christmas tree. Amen. It won't holiday tree because it's got Christ in the name of Christmas tree. Or what about the movement that opposes having a manger seen on your own lawn in your neighborhood? <laughs> Quite frankly, I think the neighbors would get over it. It was in the news this week that there's even a movement. Now, Santa himself is in the crosshairs because some are advocating that he needs to be gender fluid and not be called a man anymore. And we Christians shake our heads at all of this foolishness. And you know what we do? We keep our mouths shut. And we keep thinking, giving up a little ground here and a little ground here. And eventually what will happen is the enemy will say, okay, that's enough. You surrendered. I accept it. Haven't we learned that he will never accept it? No matter what we surrender, we have to fight for our values. We cannot lose our heart of worship. It's, it's gotten so bad. That I actually came to the conclusion years ago that religious holidays are more about tradition than they are anything else. I really, I came to that conclusion. I think they've lost their meaning. I don't really think it was my fault either that I came to feel that way. And I'm not being the Grinch who stole Christmas. And I'm not Ebenezer Scrooge by telling you this. But by looking at how the world is treated The two remaining holy days in the Christian calendar, Christmas and Easter, by watching how they've treated these two days, it's made my deduction become a plausible one. Certainly has. Both of the holidays are all about commercial sales. Christmas is about, you don't even want to get within 10 miles of the Galleria now. You're lucky if you can get within 10 miles of the Galleria. You know what I'm talking about. Jingle bells, Christmas sells, to the mall we go. Having fun, the money's done, and Visa we all owe. Hey. Yeah. Watching the way the world has treated our two holy days is bad enough. But then watching the way the church and Christians have dealt with them has reinforced my belief that we've forgotten what it's all about. Little church that I attended as a child would be packed on Easter. On Christmas, it would be the very opposite. You'd shoot a gun and not hit anybody. (laughs) Shoot a shotgun and not hit anybody. Nobody went to church, hardly at all, on Christmas. Still don't. Explanation I've always heard is that Christmas is all about the family. Oh, really? That's part of what it's about. But it's not all about the family. It's about his birth. Truth is, is that in Christian circles, and I am closing, oh, you're dampening my holiday cheer. (laughs) Maybe it needs to be dampened. Maybe the guitars need to be turned off and the keyboards, and maybe we need to silence the drums, and maybe we need to get back to the heart of worship and ask what are we bringing as our gift to him. I'm not talking about literally turning off the instruments I'm talking about insofar as our individual worship experience is concerned. Maybe we need to just turn some things off. Our team does an incredible job, but maybe we as individuals just need to turn some things off. 
It's because of all of this that I, I reached the point that I, like everybody else, you know what I did? I just smiled my way through it. Well, we went to what were supposed to be our two holiest days. The truth is, is that most believers, it was their most carnal seasons of the year. I smiled through it, enjoyed time with family, ate like more than I should, and started a diet after the new year just like you. And then about 23, 24 years ago, I made a decision. I've come to feel very strongly the other way that we are supposed to fight it. And I announced that we were going to have, get this now, Christmas Eve service and Christmas Day service. Anybody remember when I first announced that? And there was a... Shock that went through the whole congregation. And I began to hear the murmuring. And the loudest was from the staff. Amen. <laughs> yeah, Pastor, you're going to have Christmas Day service, Christmas Eve service. Don't we know that's about family? Yeah. And I said, we're going to have church. Here a couple of years ago, because it happens every seven years, except it's unless it's a leap year, and then it changes it by one day. Every seven years, Christmas falls on a Sunday. And a couple of years ago, Christmas was on Sunday, and my staff came, and you could see the gleam in their eye. Pastor, we've called other churches. And they named all of the big significant churches. They're shutting down for Christmas. There will be no Christmas Day service. What are we going to do? I said, we're going to have church. Amen. But nobody else is. Well, that'll give everybody else a place to come then, won't it? Amen. Because it's the Lord's birthday. We've got to remember the heart of worship. It's all about Him. Come on, can somebody give the word, the, the Lord some praise and give the word an applause right now and let you God know you accept what his word is saying to us. I'm quite certain that when early believers first began to celebrate both Christmas and Easter, it wasn't family days they were celebrating. I'm quite certain. I'm quite certain it was about them celebrating him. Because the word holiday comes from two words, holy day. You combine the two words and create what is called in a, a literary device, it's called a portmanteau. You create one word out of two, holy day, holiday. Let's keep it that way. Let's keep it holy. Amen. So as we relocate from this place that we love and as we enter the Christmas season, I encourage all of us to not only remember what the season means, but what God means to each of us all the time. Let's not lose our heart of worship in the season that ought to be directed to him. Can I hear somebody give God some praise right now? Would you stand with me across the building? The heart of worship. Your heart of worship will be tested during this season. And you've got to say, it's all about you, Lord. All about you. And when I think of it, the awe of it, the majesty of it. My heart gets so full I can't hardly stand it. That he would love me so much. That he would leave the splendor of that world to come be born into this world.
Let me just invite you forward. Would you come? I want us to pray. I dare you to go through the Christmas season and every, every time you see a bright display of lights say it's all about you Lord every time you hear news of a sale it's all about you Lord make this the most worshipful and glorious Christmas season that you and your family have ever experienced men Men, I challenge you to be a priest to your home during this Christmas season. Oh, I love the old songs too. Dashing through the snow. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. I like all that too. But in the middle of all of that, I want to shut it down once in a while and just say, You, Lord, it's all about you. And when the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come, would you bow your heads with me just for a moment?
seven weeks of miracles seven weeks of breakthroughs the one thing that I have learned about breakthrough is that if you're a worshiper breakthroughs go with worship anybody need a breakthrough in this house would you lift your hand could I just pray for you Father, there are so many needs for breakthroughs in this place. Help us to understand the way to our breakthrough, the key indeed, the key to our breakthrough is not to come to receive, but rather to come to give you praise and worship because where your presence goes, your favor also goes. And where your favor goes, breakthroughs occur right and left. The unexplainable takes place. What scientific reason cannot find an answer to, you cause to happen. And God, I'm asking you to let breakthroughs occur in families. Over this Christmas season, draw people closer together. Heal the rift that has occurred in homes that have been broken. There are some people in this house today that are suffering and wounded because marriage vows have been violated. Attention has wandered. Devotion, love has not been where it should have been. I'm asking you to renew flames. I really feel this in my heart as we pray together, Lord, that where there's nothing but cold ashes and there no longer remains any warmth of a fire that used to be there, you can cause a fire to be kindled again. And I speak it in the name of Jesus. I speak it over families that are struggling. I declare it in the name of Jesus. Where attention has wandered, I ask that you focus our attention back on you, Lord. You, Lord. As we look deep into your eyes, let our hearts be synchronized once again with yours. You really are the king of endless worth. There are other miracles that need to be done this weekend as well. Next weekend, the week after, in the two weeks that we have remaining of this year, I ask you to move and be God and reveal yourself as God.